Father, thank you for letting us have this communion time together. Thank you so much for telling us exactly what to ponder, what to think about, what to remember. And thank you for using those very thoughts from your word to change and transform and guide our lives. Lord, when we take you seriously at your word, it's amazing what you do in our lives. And Jesus said, remember, remember my sacrifice, remember my body, remember my blood. Don't forget, don't forget that we're not the ones that had to do it. We couldn't do it. But to remember, Jesus paid it all. He's the one that did it. Thank you so much for tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing near the cross together. Book. Let's go to 137. That's where the song Tell Me the Story of Jesus is. We'll sing all three verses. Sweet. 
Have you turned to Galatians chapter 4 this evening? We're officially into the Christmas season. Some people get into that Christmas spirit very quickly. Others of us kind of drag our feet a little bit. I guess I'm in the latter. But it is our communion service, and it is December, and it is Christmas time. So certainly we want to address uh, that from Galatians chapter 4. I would submit to you this evening that obviously as Christians we're, we're always encouraging people to not get caught up in all of the commercialism and get caught up in the busyness of the schedule and not to forget the true meaning of Christmas. But certainly I would submit to you tonight that just thinking about the manger is not the true meaning of Christmas. You know, the manger scene itself is, is very non-threatening. Most people, even non-Christians, are not threatened by a manger scene, a nativity scene. It's very calming, very peaceful, probably 
very unlike reality, but uh, the nativity scenes that we are familiar with looking at, very calming, very almost romantic, very non-threatening. But the nativity scene is not the true meaning of Christmas. It's the beginning, but it's not the true meaning. A nativity scene that does not include the cross is not really the true meaning of Christmas. For Christ came, he was born to die. And without the cross, the nativity scene is really quite meaningless. And so tonight in Galatians 4, and it's a very familiar verse, we're here to remember tonight, so it's nothing new. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. That's the nativity scene. That's Christmas. But then verse 5 takes us to the cross. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might, be, might receive the adoption of sons. All the Old Testament prophecies, all the announcements of Christ's birth to, well, Joseph and Mary prior to his birth, and then to the shepherds, and then the wise men, you're hard-pressed to find any Old Testament prophecy about the birth of Christ that does not also include the cross of Christ. You're hard-pressed to find any announcements, whether it be to Joseph or to Mary or to the shepherds or, or what the wise men were, were remembering, to read any of those accounts and those appearances of the angels coming to those individuals, it always includes the cross. There's always something there about why he was coming. We can't really look at the true meaning of Christmas if we don't include the cross. And we certainly see that in, in Galatians chapter 4 and 5. And so we want to look at those verses tonight. Certainly the birth of Christ, Christmas time, but the true meaning, he was born to die. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this time around your table to remember. And we do remember that you sent your son to redeem us from the curse of the law. We thank you, Father, for this Christmas season, but we thank you, more importantly, for this table tonight in which we remember the sacrifice of our Savior. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When the fullness of time was come, the time of Christ's birth was not haphazard. It certainly was not an accident. It wasn't just any old time. It was the time appointed by God the Father. The word fullness here is, is a word that refers to that which is completed. So when the, the time appointed by the Father was completed, he sent forth his Son. It was the exact time that God the Father had chosen. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. The exact time, when the fullness of time, the, the time had been completed that the Father had appointed, and he sent forth his Son. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, of course, God promised that there would be one who would come of the seed of woman who would indeed crush the head of Satan. And then, from that time on, those who believed God were anticipating the arrival of that one. You come to Genesis chapter 4, and it, it appears as though when Cain was born, Adam and Eve's firstborn, that they expected maybe this was the one, as they named him, anticipated, meaning of the name Cain. 
And so they, they, the believers were anticipating the arrival of this one. It was a couple of thousand years later where God promised to Abraham that there would be one of his seed that would bless the nations of the world. It was about 500 years later where God, through Moses, established the sacrificial system, all pointing to this one who would come. He became known as the Anointed One, the Messiah. 500 years later, David is promised that there'd be one of his seed that would sit upon his throne forever. And then we have the prophets Isaiah, prophets Micah, the prophets Malachi, all prophesying concerning the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one that would come to crush the head of Satan, the one who would come to be the deliverer, the one who would fulfill those sacrifice, uh, that, that sacrificial system. And then there was 400 years of silence. God said nothing. 400 years. Had God changed his mind? Had God forgotten? When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. After that 400 years of silence, the time that God had appointed had been fulfilled. It was completed. And he sent forth his son. Why? Why that time? We can't answer that. There's nothing in Scripture that would tell us exactly why that was the time that God the Father had chosen. We can speculate, perhaps, uh, uh, maybe politically, the Roman Empire was in full swing at that time and kind of in control of the known world, and maybe that was the, the best time for the Son to come. Um, the Greek language was kind of universal in that Roman Empire, and so that made it uh, perhaps... Uh, easier for the spread of the gospel to begin with. So there may have been some of those factors, but we don't ultimately know, but it was the exact time, the perfect time appointed by the Father. We've pointed out before, it was the perfect time. It was the time that the Father had appointed, but from Mary's perspective, it could not have been a worse time. Nine months pregnant, and now she has to make a trip to Bethlehem. A terrible time for such a trip. She didn't just jump in a car and get there in an hour. It was quite the journey. Terrible time for that decree from Caesar Augustus. But it was the perfect time. You know, I, I think about that, and I know, again, we've pointed that out before, but just as a reminder for us, um, everything in our life is... God's perfect timing. It may not seem like it to us. It may seem like the worst of times. It may seem like a horrible time. The timing of whatever we may be dealing with may seem like this just could not have come at a worse time, but it's God's perfect time. It's exactly the time that God appointed. And we need to recognize that as we recognize here that it was God's perfect timing to send His Son. Well, it's God's perfect timing everything in our lives. Regardless of how it may appear to us, it's God's perfect time. So when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. The word sent forth here is uh, ex apostello, apostello, ex apostello. Apostello is the word from which we get a word, the word apostle. The apostle is the sent one. This is ex apostello. X means out of, so literally it's sent out of. So the thought here is he sent forth his son, he's sending him out of something into something. 
He's sending him out of heaven into this world. And so from the use of this word, we, we glean a couple of truths. First of all, if he's being sent out of something, then that would tell us that he preexisted. This is the preexistence of Christ. Christ didn't have his beginning in Bethlehem. He was God the Son for eternity. And he's now being sent out of heaven. He was co-equal with the Father, existing co-equally with him in heaven in all the glories of heaven. And now the Father is sending him out of heaven. In this song, he left paradise. And for us, he paid the price. He was sent out of heaven. He left the glories of heaven, that equal manner of existence with the Father that he's enjoyed in eternity past. He now leaves sent out of heaven. So it reminds us of the pre-existence of Christ. He existed in heaven, and now he's being sent out of heaven. Um, it's also reminding us of what 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 tells us, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. What a wonderful verse. What a great reminder. He was rich. He was in the glories of heaven. For our sakes, he became poor. He came to this sin-cursed world as a baby, born in a stable, laid in a manger, that we might become rich. What a wonderful truth. And as we consider that word uh, sent out, he was, uh, it wasn't that he was forced out. He was sent out. Willingly, he came. He didn't have to have his arm twisted by the Father and kicked out of heaven. He willingly went forth out of heaven as the Father sent him. The other thought that we see in this word, apostello, is a word that refers to being sent on a specific task. It's not just the idea of sending out to do whatever, but to be sent on a specific task. And as one is sent on a specific task with this word, it also refers to the fact that the one who is sent for this specific task comes with the authority of the sender. As I said earlier, the word apostle comes from this word apostello. The apostles were sent on a specific task, chosen by God to perform a specific task, and they came with the authority of God. Now, there are no apostles today. No one has that same authority. We talk sometimes about apostolic authority. No one has that today. The apostles were sent on a specific task with the authority of God. Well, Christ was sent out of heaven, but sent on a specific task with the authority of the Father. That's why, as we read in the Gospels, um, especially the religious leaders hated him. Because he claimed, and he used this word, I have been sent by the Father. Well, they understood that what he was claiming there is he was coming with the authority of the Father, and they hated him. They didn't believe him. They crucified him. Because he claimed to be one who was sent by the Father with the authority of the Father. And certainly he was, as we read, he was sent forth. Um, Sent forth his son, made of a woman. Again, that takes us, does it not, remind us of all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. This one who would come to crush the head of Satan would be of the seed of the woman. 
not man and woman, but of the woman. And so now we read that he was made of a woman, not man and woman, but just woman. He was indeed virgin born. Some would argue that it's not important. The virgin birth isn't that important. You can believe it or not believe it. It's not significant. I would argue that point very strongly that not only is it important, it is absolutely necessary. Without it, we have nothing. The virgin birth is necessary. For the pre-existent Son of God to become a man, to be sent out of heaven to become a man, a miracle is required. For that pre-existent God the Son to become a man, a miracle is required. The virgin birth provides that miracle. Provides that miracle in, in, in several ways. Um, first of all, he is God. He's God the Son. And for God the Son to come to this world to be a sacrifice in our behalf, again, a miracle is required. The virgin birth provides that miracle. Without the virgin birth, be as a human father and a human mother, he can't be God. The virgin birth allows him to be God. Um, to deny the virgin birth is to deny his deity. To deny the virgin birth would be to deny that he's God the Son. And then, along with that, we recognize that uh, when the angel appeared to, to Mary, of course, she asked the obvious question, how can these things be, knowing that I, I know not a man? And the angel responded and said that the Holy Spirit would come upon her, and that holy thing which would be conceived in you would be called the Son of God. The holy he was holy. He was sinless. For him to be sinless, a miracle is required. The virgin birth provides that miracle. For if he had a human father, he could not be sinless. And so the virgin birth provides for us that he is holy, he is sinless. So the virgin birth ensures us that he's God. The virgin birth assures us that he's sinless. The virgin birth assures us that he is human. He was born of a woman, made of a woman. She was human, he was human. So the virgin birth provides the miracle for him to be God and man. Sinless. To deny the virgin birth is to deny his deity. To deny the virgin birth is to deny his sinlessness. To deny his deity and to deny his sinlessness denies the sufficiency of his sacrifice. We're around this table tonight to remember that sacrifice. If he's not virgin born, being around this table tonight is meaningless. If he's not virgin born, he's not God. If he's not virgin born, he's not sinless. If he's not God and he's not sinless, his sacrifice meant nothing. He had to be God. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. The blood of a creature can't take away sin. The blood of another human can't take away sin. He could only accept the sacrifice of himself. He had to be God. And then he had to be sinless. If he wasn't sinless, then he had to die for his own sin. To die for my sin, he had to be sinless. To deny the virgin birth is to deny his deity, it's to deny his sinlessness, and it would be to deny the sufficiency of his sacrifice.
It's not only important, the virgin birth, it is absolutely necessary. He was made of a woman. Made under the law. When Christ was born, he was indeed, as we said, the God-man. He was fully human. And God had laid down a law, that Old Testament law, his moral law. He had given that to man to live by. And since Jesus was a man, he could not live above the law. He had to submit himself to that law of God. So he was made under the law. He submitted himself to that law, even though he was God, even though he was the lawgiver. When he became a man, he had to submit to that law. He could not live above the law. And he submitted to that law, and and that brings us then to verse 5, the cross. As he submitted himself to that law, then he was able to redeem them that were under the law. The word redemption, of course, we recognize is to to buy out of the slave market and to set free. It's it's the Greek word ex agorazo. Agora is the word for market. Agorazo means to buy something in the market. Ex agorazo, there's that word ex again, It, it means out of. It's the idea of to purchase something in the market, but to to take it out of the market and to remove it from further sale. And so, ex agorazo, he's redeemed us that were under the law. Um, We were slaves to sin. He's purchased us out of that slave market of sin. He's removed us from that market. Never to be sold again. We are free from that slavery to sin. He's redeemed us as we were under that law. We were slaves to sin. We were under the curse of the law because we couldn't keep the law. He's redeemed us. He's purchased us out of that slavery. He's purchased our freedom from the curse of the law. He's redeemed us. Um, As we consider that redemption, we, we recognize a couple of things as he was himself made under the law and then redeemed us from the curse of the law. And the one thing we recognize is that Christ was indeed, as we said earlier, sinless. As he was made under the law, he kept the law perfectly. That's why he was able to be our sacrifice. But also, in keeping that law perfectly, Now, his righteousness is put to our account. Again, this is around the table, a time to remember, and so we we recognize that, that truth of imputation. His righteousness is imputed to us. His righteousness is put to our account. It's as if we have kept the law. Romans chapter 8 and verse 4 talks about the law being fulfilled in us. Not by us. We don't fulfill the law ourselves. We can't. In fact, there in Romans chapter 8, it also talks about the, us being weak in the flesh, could not keep the law. So the, the righteousness of the law is not fulfilled by us, but it is fulfilled in us. Christ fulfilled it in our behalf, and his righteousness is put to our account. So he was, he was made under the law, 
to redeem us who were under the law by imputing his righteousness to us. As he imputes his righteousness to us, we understand that being sinless, he then was able to die for our sin. Our sin was imputed to him. Our sin was placed upon him and he took our penalty and we gather around this table tonight to remember that truth. My sin placed upon him. Because he was guilty of my sin, he had to take the penalty for my sin. Again, marvelous truth. That he might, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The word adoption here is actually uh, a compound word. It's the word huios, which is the word for son. And then it's the word uh, thesis, which is the word to place. So it, it's son placement. Now, we use the word adoption a little bit differently today in our culture than what the Greeks were in this Greek word. Son placement. We, we think of adoption as as a child who perhaps maybe was orphaned or whatever the case might be and another family will bring them into their family and and make them their son or make them their their child we call that adoption and, and, and it's, a, it's a good word it's a good thought it's not fully the idea here um, as the Greeks used the word it was more the idea of of placing them as an adult son and we don't have the time tonight but to Earlier in chapter 4 here of Galatians, it, it, it says, uh, verse 1, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. The idea is that, that a minor child, um, he was under, as it says here, the tutors and governors, um, he was not an adult son. He did not have the privileges of an adult son. He did not have the responsibilities of an adult son until, as it says in verse 2, the time appointed by the father. And at such time, the father then would make that child, that son, an adult son. He would become heir of all things with the full privileges of an adult son, with the full responsibilities of an adult son. And he was adopted. He was placed as an adult son. And that's the thought here. We are children of God. But we're not minors. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We have the privileges of adult sonship. And yes, the responsibilities of adult sonship. And so when he talks about the, the adoption of sons, it's, I get a little bit nervous when people talk about uh, that we're adopted into the family of God. Um, I get a little bit nervous because my Bible tells me that I'm born into the family of God. I'm born again. It's a new birth. I'm given new life. And that new life is the life of Christ himself. I'm born again into the family of God. I'm not adopted into the family of God in the sense that we use the word adoption. No, I'm, I'm born again into the family of God. 
I'm adopted in the sense that once I become a child of God, I'm an adult child. I'm a full heir of God, joint heirs with Christ. I have all the privileges of adult sonship. And yes, the responsibilities of adult sonship. So I'm not adopted into the family of God in the sense that we use the word adoption today. I'm born into the family of God through new birth and then adopted as an adult son, placed as adult son. And so it's Christmas time. We remember verse 4. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. But don't stop there. If all you do is look at the nativity scene, you're not looking at the full meaning of Christmas. There must be the shadow of the cross over that nativity scene because he was sent by the Father with the Father's authority on a specific task, and that task was to redeem those that were under the law, to purchase us out of that slave market of sin and to set us free. That's why he came. His righteousness put to our account, our sin put to his account, and we are redeemed from the curse of the law. And we are adopted, placed as adult children, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That redemption, the price of that redemption was his death on the cross. That's why we gather around this table this evening to remember his sacrifice in our behalf, that broken body and shed blood so that we might be redeemed and adopted. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this reminder tonight at this Christmas season to go beyond the manger to the cross. The sacrifice of our Savior that we are here to remember this evening and to give you thanks for redeeming us from the curse of the law to bringing us into your family through that new birth and making us your adult children, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As Tammy sings for us, let's examine ourselves. Are we partaking of our elements this evening in a worthy manner as 1 Corinthians chapter 11 would command us to examine ourselves? Am I in a right relationship with God Am I in a right relationship with others? Is there sin in my life that I'm not truly dealing with? Tammy will lead us in song. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and mount the heart.
of stone. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Thank you, Tammy. Jesus paid it all. Nothing more to pay. His sacrifice was sufficient. He cried from the cross, it is finished. Deacons, if you 